This is part two of Recovery Dharma as read by Graham from Grimerica Podcast. Let's get into it. Self, what can I do in the present? Can you address and reconcile with the harm you have caused without forming an attachment to being forgiven? Identify the motivation for making each amends. What actions would restore balance in your own feelings and approach to whomever harm you have caused? Can these steps be taken without causing new harm to the person or the relationship? If you are experiencing a difficult situation or choice in your life right now, investigate the attention you are bringing to this situation. Are you being selfish or self-seeking? How? Are you being driven by aversion, running away from an unpleasant experience, or craving, grasping for pleasure? How? How could you bring in a spirit of generosity, compassion, loving-kindness, appreciative joy, and forgiveness to the situation? How would this situation look different if you brought these factors to mind before reacting or responding? If you don't want to, can you at least have the intention and willingness to do so? Wise Speech Wise speech is based on the intention to do no harm. We've all used speech in a manner that may create harm. Lying to keep others from knowing what's really going on, gossiping with the intention of putting someone down or satisfying our desire to be recognized, stealing time and attention by chattering on and on, or trying to convince others to meet our own needs at the expense of their own. Wise speech includes all the ways we use our voices, including in writing and online. The most basic foundation of wise speech is honesty or truthfulness. Dishonesty is not just outright lies, it can take the form of exaggeration, minimizing, or omitting, all with the intention of presenting a false picture or distorting what something actually is. It can take the form of white lies to avoid embarrassment or exposure, half-truths to keep from being caught, or seemingly harmlessly things said at the expense of others. We may say more than we really know to be true in the hopes of appearing smarter or more confident in our position or feeling. Sometimes we say something before we know the truth. Dishonesty has to do with our intention and speech. Are we motivated by greed, fear, confusion? Are we motivated by a sincere desire to express what's true, what's useful, what's kind, and what's timely? Wise speech means we speak with the intention of not causing harm and of fostering safety and security in our community. In active addiction, we develop the habit of dishonesty. We lie to cover up or mislead others about the nature and extent of our using and behavior. We lie so we can satisfy the craving our fixation feeds by hiding our actions, our feelings, or the amount of money and effort we put into satisfying our craving. Many of us lie just for the sake of lying, because the truth represents a reality we can't tolerate. We get trapped by our secrets, and for many of us, having a double life becomes an addiction all its own. This is why honesty is foundational to recovery. Dishonesty is one of the habits that allow our addictive behaviors to flourish. As a result, recovery needs to start with an honest appraisal of exactly what lies we told, 
and what dishonesty we spread during our addictive behavior. The Buddha pro provided some guidelines for wise speech, in addition to truthfulness. He said to avoid slander and gossip, recognizing that it causes conflict and unrest in the community, making it less safe. So, when we talk about others, we can ask ourselves, what's our intention? Is it to cause division or exclusion? Is it to cause shame or embarrassment in someone else? Or to somehow make ourselves look better at someone else's expense? It's possible to talk about other people with the intention of kindness, generosity, and compassion. To seek understanding or support for another. Gossip and slander don't do this and instead cause harm. Similarly, idle chatter and saying things just to be heard or recognized or to take up time when we're uncomfortable, can lead people to dismiss or ignore us, and may create impatience and intolerance in a community. Wise speech also involves the tone we use when we talk. If we express ourselves in a harsh, angry, or abusive ways, we may not be heard even if we're being truthful. Speaking gently, with the intention of kindness, fosters a community of friendliness and safety. It may sound like wise speech is primarily about discerning when not to speak, but this isn't always the case. Many of us grew up in families where it wasn't safe to talk openly about our thoughts and feelings. Some, because of certain experiences or cultural conditioning, have been taught that we don't have permission to use our voices. For many of us, practicing wise speech may mean learning how to use our voices that have been silenced how to wisely communicate the needs and boundaries we've gotten used to keeping hidden. Many of us, in an effort to be liked, or for fear of rocking the boat, have favored being nice over being honest and true to ourselves. But wise speech teaches us that speaking up, even when it's hard, is sometimes the wise choice, and that speech is never truly kind if we cause harm to ourselves. A final part of wise speech is careful listening. We must listen with compassion, understanding, and receptivity. It can be really helpful to observe how much of the time we spend listening to someone else is actually spent judging them or planning what we're going to say in response. Deep listening, without selfishness or an agenda, is an act of generosity that lets us build true connection. Questions for inquiry of wise speech. How have you caused harm with your speech? Have you been dishonest or harsh with your communication? When and in what specific ways? Do you use speech now to hurt or control people, to present a false idea or image of yourself, or reality, to demand attention or relieve the discomfort of silence? Detail specific instances in which you use speech to mislead, misdirect, or distract. Are you careful to avoid causing harm with your speech? Do you say things you know are not true or pretend to know the truth about something when you don't to appear more knowledgeable or credible than you are? List some examples. Wise action. Wise action is also based on the intention to do no harm and to foster compassion, loving kindness, generosity, and forgiveness. We try to do what's skillful and avoid actions that are unskillful. Wise action asks that we try to make choices based on understanding and not unthinking habits or ignorance. The Buddha suggests that we make a commitment to avoid five specific actions that cause harm, a commitment which is known as the five precepts. 
We commit to the five precepts as our basic moral system, avoiding specific actions that cause harm. One, we set the intention to avoid taking the life of another living being or from causing harm to ourselves or another living being. Number two, we set the intention to avoid taking what is not freely given or stealing. Three, we set the intention to avoid causing harm to our sexual conduct and to be aware of the consequences and impact of our sexual activity and desire. Four, we set the intention of being honest, of not lying, and of not using speech in a harmful way. Five, we set the intention to avoid the use of intoxicants and intoxicating behavior that cloud our awareness. We need to continually reflect on and question the intentions behind our actions. We may have moments of clarity, but these can quickly pass when old habits or thinking resurfaces. We commit to constantly reminding ourselves of our intention to wise action, to act in ways that are non-harming. Questions for inquiry of wise action. Have you acted in a way that was unskillful or that created suffering? How? During those times you were unskillful or creating suffering, how would it have changed the outcome if you had acted out of compassion, kindness, generosity, and forgiveness? Would you now have a different emotional or mental response to your past actions if you had acted with these principles in mind? The first precept. Have you caused harm? How? Allow for a broad understanding of harm, including physical, emotional, mental, and karmic harm, as well as financial, legal, moral, and other forms of harm. Even if you can't point to specific harms that you have caused, have you acted in a way that purposefully avoided being aware of the possibility of harm? Second precept. People take in many ways. We take goods or material possessions. We take time and energy. We take care and recognition. With this broad understanding of taking, have you taken what has not been freely given? How? What are specific examples or patterns where this has been true for you? Third precept. Have you behaved irresponsibly, selfishly, or without full consent and awareness from yourself or partners in your sexual conduct? How? Reviewing your sexual partners or activities, have you been fully aware in each instance of other existing relationships, prior or current mental or emotional conditions of yourself and your partners, and your own intentions in becoming sexually involved? How or how not? Has your sexual activity, both by yourself and with others, been based on non-harmful intentions? Have you entered into each sexual activity with awareness and understanding? How or how not? Fourth precept. Have you been dishonest? How? What patterns did your dishonesty take? Did you act or speak dishonestly to deny or misrepresent the truth about your own behavior or status? Were there particular situations in which your dishonesty was particularly present? For instance when dealing with your addictive behaviors in your job or professional settings among friends or family? Investigate the source of dishonesty in each setting. Was it based on greed, confusion, fear, denial? Why were you lying? The fifth precept. Have you used intoxicants or other behaviors that cloud your ability to see clearly? 
What substances and behaviors have you become reliant on to change or cloud your awareness? Has this changed over time? If you have periods of abstinence, were your habitual intoxicants or behaviors replaced by other ways to avoid awareness of your present circumstances and conditions? How? List ways you might practice the five precepts, compassion, loving kindness, and generosity in your decision making. Wise Livelihood The final factor in the ethical group is wise livelihood. Again, the intent is to avoid causing harm. This focuses on how we support ourselves in the world. For most of us, our work occupies so much of our time and tension. So how we choose to make a living takes on special importance. Understanding the principle of karma and knowing that unwholesome activity gives rise to unwholesome karma Whatever choices or circumstances lead us to a particular job need to be recognized as having karmic consequences. We try to avoid jobs that give rise to suffering and seek work that does no harm or reduces suffering. The Buddha mentions five kinds of livelihood to avoid. Trading in weapons or instruments of killing, trafficking in or selling human beings, killing of other beings, making or selling addictive drugs, or business and poison. We're encouraged to avoid occupations based on dishonesty or injury. Whatever our job is, we can practice it mindfully, with an intention of non-harm, of easing suffering, and of compassion. This means developing an attitude toward our occupation beyond just the money we make. We can develop an approach of service and caring about the effects of our actions on others, both within and outside our workspaces. Wise livelihood is not about judging ourselves or others for their choice of work or to try to limit their choices. Instead, we try to understand why and how we engage in whatever occupation we practice. Whatever work we do, we can maintain an intention of benefiting others. Questions for inquiry of wise livelihood. Does your job cause harm? What is your specific nature of that harm? How can you do your job more mindfully and with an intention of compassion and non-harm? Do you bring an understanding of karma and kindness to your job? Or do you compartmentalize it and exclude it from awareness of wise action? What part does greed play in the choices you make in your livelihood? Does greed get in the way of awareness or compassion? How can you be of more service in your community? How might you bring a spirit of generosity to your life, both in your profession and outside it? Wise effort. Wise effort is the first of the concentration group. It means concentrating our effort on understanding and recovery and awakening. Wise effort isn't based on how much we should meditate, how much service we should do, or how much time we put into healthy activity. Instead, it's the intention to devote balanced energy to supporting the other parts of the path, particularly wisdom. The first thing to pay attention to is the avoiding situations and states of mind that can lead to unwholesome, unskillful, or harmful responses. We become more aware of conditions in our lives and investigate our own responses and reactions to those conditions. When we're operating out of greed, ignorant, confusion, or thinking we can get what we want, we need to be aware of that. 
We put in the effort and energy to understand what circumstances allowed these conditions to arise and how we can begin to move away from those responses. Energy, or effort, is also devoted to letting compassion, loving-kindness, generosity, and forgiveness arise when they're not present. If we find ourselves reacting with anger rather than compassion, fear instead of generosity, and blame instead of forgiveness, we can ask how we would respond if those positive factors were present and begin to respond more skillfully. Being hard on ourselves, beating ourselves up, and suffering from perfectionism are all familiar feelings during addiction and recovery. When we shame ourselves for not being good enough, not trying hard enough, not being enough, these are perfect opportunities to practice wise effort, to reflect on the question, in this moment, how can I be kind and gentle with myself? In early recovery, we may be most interested in damage control, simply stopping the destruction and demoralization we have suffered through our habitual, unskillful responses to craving. We can begin by awareness of that craving and learning to make different choices that don't trigger the craving. Sometimes awareness is enough. Sometimes that's all the effort we can muster. As we learn more skillful responses to our triggers, we gain space to have more compassion, loving-kindness, generosity, and forgiveness. And as this practice becomes more of a habit, equanimity and peacefulness begin to replace our habits of grasping and selfishness. Pacing ourselves is important, alternating periods of activity and rest. We need to be aware of what our mind, emotions, body, and recovery can handle right now, and avoid the stress that can come from pushing ourselves too far and too fast. We need to avoid those things that put us into unskillful mind states and try to do things that return us to a more easeful way of being in the present moment. Try to remember that whatever your experience is right now, it will pass, often in unpredictable ways. Remind yourself that you don't really know how long an unpleasant or painful experience will last. Try to be open to recognizing and investigating the experience while it's present, without interpreting it as a permanent part of your experience. Recognizing that the craving, experience, or thought will pass makes it easier to avoid the impulse to make an immediate, unskillful response. Questions for Inquiry of Wise Effort What efforts have you made to connect with a wise friend, mentor, or dharma buddy who can help you develop and balance your efforts? Think of a situation that is causing you discomfort or ease. What is the nature of the effort you're bringing to the situation? Pay attention to whether it feels balanced or unsustainable, and if you're leaning too far in the direction of either inactivity or overexertion. Are you dealing with overwhelming desires, aversions, laziness, or discouragement, restlessness and worry, or doubt about your own ability to recover? Do, how do these hindrances affect the choice you're making? Are you avoiding feelings by checking out and giving up, or through obsessive busyness and perfectionism? Wise Mindfulness Mindfulness, being present to what's going on in our minds, bodies, heart, and world, is central to the practice of the Eightfold Path. We learn to be present for the way things are with compassion, without judging them or ourselves. Mindfulness is being aware of whatever is present, noticing it, 
and letting it pass. It is also remembering that we're on a path leading to our freedom and long-lasting happiness. Mindfulness asks us to be aware, to investigate, without the reactivity and grasping for control that leads to suffering. We learn to stay attentive to what's happening without having to either react to or deny what's happening. For many of us, our addiction prevented us from being mindful. In fact, that was often the whole point. We used our substances and behaviors to avoid feeling, to avoid being aware, because being aware was painful. By trying to avoid pain, we often created more suffering. We're now making a different choice. To sit with the discomfort rather than pushing it away or trying to numb it. We can learn to sit with the discomfort in different ways, either up close and personal, saying, this fear is simply a bunch of body sensations, or in a more distant, non-attached way, there's the fear, I don't have to let it control me. We're choosing to respond to it with mindful investigation and compassion, and to trust that it will pass if we let it. We're remembering that there's another way to respond to life. Our minds get lost in the how we react to experiences. When something happens, we almost immediately begin to create a story, plan, or fantasy about it. We have a thought about an experience that leads to another, and on and on until we're far from a real understanding of the experience itself. Mindfulness is noticing the experience in that moment before we get lost in the judgment of the moment or the stories that we spin about it. Rather than blindly following our reactions and responses to an experience, mindfulness allows us the space to choose to respond skillfully and from a place of wisdom and morality. Mindfulness encourages us to be open and to investigate the painful experiences and our habitual reactions to those experiences, rather than to deny, ignore, suppress, or run from them. Most of us have been conditioned to be our own harshest critic from early on, and especially during our fixations on substances and behaviors. We carry the shadow of that judge with us, even as we seek recovery, giving ourselves negative feedback and scrutinizing every effort we make, holding ourselves to impossible standards of perfection. Letting go of that inner critic allows us to be mindful in the present of the efforts we are making, of the compassion and loving kindness we're learning to make a part of our practice in our lives. Remember that we often talk way more harshly to ourselves than we ever would to somebody else. It's useful to notice when we're treating ourselves too harshly and then shift attention to what we are doing well. We can acknowledge the negative thought and then gently let it go. Mindfulness practice is based on what are called the four foundations. The first foundation, mindfulness of the body, asks us to bring awareness, attention, or focus to breathing and to bodily sensations. Meditations on the breath and body are focused on this awareness. The second foundation is mindfulness of the feeling and feeling tones. This practice involves noticing the emotional tone, pleasure or displeasure, that comes with every sensation, even when the sensation is a thought. It also encourages to notice when a sensation is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, but feels neutral to us. For example, we can experience the sensations of breathing, the sensation of breathing in, the sensation of exhaling, 
by noticing where in our body we feel the breath most directly. But we can experience the sensations without feeling particular pleasure in the sensations of breathing. Breathing is just there. It's a natural process of being alive. The second foundation instructs us to notice these sensations that are neutral, as well as those that are pleasant or unpleasant. The third foundation, mindfulness of the mind, asks us to notice when attachment, also known as greed or wanting, comes up and to be aware that the attachment arises in the mind. We also learn to notice when the mind is not attached to a particular thought or sensation. The same practice of noticing applies when we become aware of aversion, which we can experience as resistance or even hatred. And when aversion isn't present in the mind, we notice that the mind is free from aversion. In the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of mental objects or of mental phenomena, we begin to simply notice when a thought arises, being aware of it without judgment or evaluation, and allow it to pass away without holding on to it and without creating a story out of it. Training in the fourth foundation lets us be aware of thoughts arising and passing away, and that each thought will pass if we allow it to. Two simple practices can make mindfulness more a part of our daily lives. First, we can stop whatever we're doing at any moment and pay attention to the physical sensations of the in-breaths and out-breaths. This simple practice grounds our attention in what's present right now, rather than the voices and the critics that we carry with us. Shifting from the stories and judgments we constantly create during the day to this simple grounding practice of three breaths in and three breaths out gives us the space we need sometimes to return to mindfulness of the present. A second practice is to take time to inquire into the truthfulness of the negative or difficult messages we give ourselves. First, take time to ask yourself whether the message is true. Second, ask how you're sure that it's true. Are you absolutely certain about what may seem like an easy or automatic truth? Third, notice how you feel when you believe the thought. Does it lead to fear, anger, sadness, desire? Finally, reflect on who you'd be without the thought. How would you feel if you weren't caught up in the particular mindset or scenario that you're creating? Questions for inquiry on wise mindfulness. What are steps you can take to support a regular meditation practice? What are steps you can take to practice mindfulness more throughout the day by checking in with yourself about how you're feeling and pausing before reacting to situations? What are steps you can take to sit with your discomfort instead of running from it or running toward temporary pleasure? What are steps you can take to question the truths that your mind tells you rather than automatically believing them? Identify specific instances where your mind and perceptions lied to you about the truth of a situation and how being aware of that might have changed your reaction and led to a less harmful outcome. Think about times when you felt fear, doubt, or hesitation. Now bring awareness of their temporary nature. How might that awareness have led to an outcome that was less harmful? Wise Concentration the final aspect of the Eightfold Path is wise concentration. 
Meditation practice begins with the concentration of the breath, the body, the emotional tone of the moment, and the processes of the mind itself, because these things exist in the present. If we focus on breath, for example, we're paying attention to the present moment because our breathing is immediate. It's happening right now. Breathing is a natural process that doesn't require judgment or interpretation, and so it eases the mind from the need to react. The purpose of concentration is to train the mind to be focused and undistracted. This circles back to the wisdom section, where we try to be focused on wise understanding and wise thought, without being distracted by habitual perceptions and reactivity. Most of us, early in meditation practice, are distracted by things around us. Our concentration is interrupted by a noise outside the room, a pain or discomfort in the body, or our own worries or judgment of the experience, boredom or weariness, or thoughts and plans. These distractions can lead to a feeling of unease or restlessness. This is perfectly normal. In our addictions, we nurtured the habit of distracting ourselves. For many of us, it has become a survival technique. Concentration meditation gives us the opportunity to meet this habit with kindness and patience rather than resistance. Concentration, like the rest of the factors of the Eightfold Path, is a practice. As with any practice, it takes time and effort to learn a new way to focus attention. In meditation, simply noting the distraction, accepting that it exists, and then refocusing is the practice. If we become consumed with discomfort, thoughts, or distraction, we need to first recognize that it's happening, and then become curious about it. Then we can make the choice to refocus, to concentrate on the object of the meditation. Our habit patterns can seduce us into thinking we're doing it wrong, or in judging our practice, or into giving up. Don't let them. When we observe what the mind is telling us, and react with compassion, Knowing we have the power to recognize it and refocus it lets us build our ability to concentrate. Concentration can be especially helpful in times of craving. Instead of getting lost in the delusion that we must have what we're craving, we can trust that the craving is only temporary and refocus our attention on our intention to act wisely. This may simply be the three-breath pause mentioned earlier, or a more formal sitting meditation concentrating on the breath. We can use concentration meditation to train our minds to focus on a wholesome thought in the midst of temporary discomfort and the yearning for a quick fix. This may take the form of repeated phrases to focus and clear the mind such as, such as metta, compassion, or equanimity meditation. For some of us, this may take form of a prayer or a self-affirmation, a mantra, or another form of focused attention. Concentration practices can often bring a sense of well-being and peace in a time of turmoil and are a healthy way to return to a balanced, resilient state when we are stressed or agitated. Sometimes when cravings or unpleasant emotions are particularly strong, moving the body can be the best way to help refocus our energy and find relief. Concentration at those times may mean being focused and mindful about each movement we are making. This is my foot taking a step. This is my hand reaching for the cup. After a few minutes of concentration practice of not giving energy to our craving or obsession, we may find the intensity of the feeling has passed. The more we do this, the more we gain confidence that we have the power to relieve the suffering of our addiction through following this path and committing to this practice. 
For trauma survivors, the breath, the heart, and the mind can be potentially overwhelming places to place the attention. So if traditional anchors like breath and body are challenging, ask yourself, what helps you stay present? What helps to calm your nervous system? It might be the floor in front of you or a statue or a piece of art on the wall. It might even just be a blank wall. All that you need to do to be present is to pay attention to something happening right now. If you do feel powerful emotions begin to arise during meditation, there are some simple things you can do to remain present. For example, you can open your eyes rather than keeping them closed, or give yourself permission to back off from the practice you are working on. Do whatever you need to do to take care of yourself should a state arise, whether that is taking some deep breaths, putting a name on your experience, such as flashback, or silently repeating some compassionate phrases to yourself. Learning to turn attention back and forth between challenging sensations and our own supportive resources is a valuable skill that professionals call titration. You can be gentle with your practice as you are working to develop this skill. Questions for inquiry of wise concentration. How do you get unfocused or distracted in meditation? What distracts you the most? What are steps you can take to refocus your mind without judging your own practice? Notice what value or learning you could gain by carefully and kindly noticing where your mind has gone or what has distracted you. What are steps you can take to use concentration to see clearly and act wisely? What are steps you can take to be kind and gentle with yourself throughout this process? Community. Sangha. Sangha is the third of the three jewels. Loosely translated, it means community. It's where Buddha and Dharma find their expression, where we're supported in putting those principles into action. It's a community of friends practicing the Dharma together in order to develop our own awareness and maintain it. The traditional definition of Sangha originally described monastic communities of ordained monks and nuns, but in many Buddhist traditions it has evolved to include the wider spiritual community. For us, our Sangha is our community of both Dharma practice and recovery. We are decentralized and leaderless, and there are no rules to follow other than that the meeting should be an open, safe, and accessible space that tries to uphold our core principles of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity. The advice in this chapter comes from the collective experience of hundreds of local groups, and so it's offered in the spirit of friendly guidance rather than direction. The essence of a Sangha is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, integrity, and loving-kindness. Recovery begins when we learn to pay attention to and investigate experience in the present moment. It's through the Sangha that we first learn to be fully present that we stop trying to satisfy our craving and turn to an understanding of our thoughts, feelings, sense experience, and actions that include others. This understanding is fundamentally relational. Our actions have consequences on not only our own lives, but also on the people we meet and share experiences with. Many of us learn this the hard way, by hurting the ones we loved while we were in active addiction. 
A core part of our recovery includes making amends to those we have hurt, including ourselves. As we've seen, our recovery includes the wise intention to heal the suffering we have caused others and to act wisely to avoid creating the same suffering in the future. Sangha provides the opportunity to practice a central part of recovery, remembering. Remembering means the wholesome reflection that supports us in our recovery and energizes our practice of compassion, loving-kindness, generosity, and forgiveness. Sharing these experiences with others who are also struggling with addictive behaviors helps gives us confidence in our own ability to recover our true nature and our potential for awakening. Sangha enlarges our perspective and begins to give us the self-confidence and self-respect that will let us reflect on the ups and downs of recovery without discouragement or hopelessness. When we feel inspired to practice with wise friends, we can trust them to point out when we fall short of our intentions and we can be honest with ourselves. The teachings of the Buddha clearly state over and over again that this is not just something we can do on our own. And many programs of recovery, including our own, stress the importance of going to meetings and working with others in recovery. This is often something we resist, and not without reason. Some meetings are boring. Some ask us to believe things that we feel are untrue. Some are depressing or intimidating or unwelcoming for a lot of reasons. But it's with the support of others that so many of us have found relief from the suffering and isolation brought on by our addictions. And it's through being of service that we've been able to get out of our own heads and experience a more sustainable and wholesome joy than our our addictions provided. Many of us have found that there's a quality to our meditations that's different when practiced with a group. Particularly when we're getting started, it can be easy to give up or space out after a few minutes. Practicing with others can give us the motivation to stick with it long enough to start experiencing some of the benefits of the practice. And through sharing our experience and listening to what others have to say, we can see how we're not alone in a lot of our challenges. This can come as a welcome surprise after years of suffering shame and feeling like an outcast. Many of us, having habitually isolated ourselves, have found that sharing silence at a meeting creates an atmosphere of trust and can be a calming way to get used to being with others. No one is required to speak or participate in meetings. Passing is always an option when it comes to share. There's never any requirement to believe in anything, to identify yourself in any way, much less to become a Buddhist or serious practitioner. The wisdom and tools are available to everyone, wherever they are on the path. But not every meeting is going to be a fit for every person. You may live in an area where there are several different options to choose from, or there may be only a single recovery meeting near you, or none. Fortunately, there are also online meetings, many of which can be joined by phone. You can also start your own meeting. However you find them, you can trust that there are wise friends and a sangha out there for you. Isolation and Connection Addiction and the Addictive Behavior can create people without roots. Some of us have been uprooted from our families and from society. We wander around feeling as though we're not quite whole because our addictions feed our isolation and loneliness. Many come from broken families and feel rejected by society or have been isolated from society through incarceration or institutionalization. Not all of us have disassociated to that degree. 
but we do tend to live on the margins, looking for a home or something to belong to. A community of practice, a sangha, can provide a second chance to someone who's become alienated from society, or just a comfortable place to bring all of ourselves, including parts we don't usually share with others. If the community of practice is organized with a friendly, warm atmosphere, we can find support for our practice and recovery. In our addictions, we self-medicated or engaged in behaviors that helped us deal with the pain of separation. The relief was temporary, of course, often leaving us more lonely and isolated than before, yet we returned to it again and again. For many of us, it was the only way we knew to relieve the pain. Even in sobriety, when faced with well-meaning but insistent people telling us how to overcome our addictions, the instinct for many of us is to keep to ourselves. It's a habitual way of being in the world that a lot of us share. It wasn't just getting high, though for a lot of people in this fellowship and outside of it, that was the main road we took to escape. There were other traps that snagged us, even if we never struggled with substances, sex, food, self-harm, social media. We may have tried to get help with those compulsions, but often found others minimizing or trivializing them, especially in comparison to drug or alcohol use. For those of us whose primary addictions are around behaviors and processes, we may have felt alienated and excluded from recovery itself. Many of us found ourselves like raw, exposed nerves when we stopped using those ways to escape. And sometimes, the last place we wanted to be was in a room with strangers in a circle of chairs all facing each other, talking about how we can't drink or use or participate in our destructive behaviors anymore. The paradox is that it's in that kind of space where we're accepted as we are, and we can begin to let go of our reflex to hide. Many of us lost the ability, if we ever had it, to form relationships without the social lubricant of alcohol or drugs. Sometimes that was because we dealt with rejection, trauma, or loss at an early age and became anxious and avoidant around others. Or maybe we just felt different than everyone else since the day we were born, or came from a small community, or a big family, and got sick of people nosing into our business. Whatever reasons we had to isolate, we got to a point where it stopped serving us. The substances and behaviors we used to protect ourselves began to harm ourselves and others. We drove people away to be safe, and as a result, we became even more lonely. Some of us learned to isolate for good reason. People we loved and trusted harmed us in terrible ways. Some of us lived in communities and families where we constantly felt unsafe, where trusting anybody too much could be costly. In recovery, we're making the scary, difficult, and brave decision to try it out again. All humans are driven from birth for close human contact. When we're deprived of it, and even begin to lose the ability to find it, we suffer and become vulnerable to craving and addictive behavior. The mindfulness techniques and insights that the Buddha taught are key to recovering this ability. But it's not something we have to do alone. In fact, having people to help and support on the path is an integral part of the teachings. So, as it turns out, the solution and the way to get to the solution are actually one and the same. A lot of us are perennial outsiders. We felt, often with some justification, that we have been failed and abandoned by schools, by religious institutions or the government, and often by our own families. 
As a result, we came to mistrust organizations and groups, and even the idea of belonging itself. The double bind there, of course, is that because we never allow anyone to get to know us, we cut off the possibility of ever belonging. The Buddha taught that nothing and nobody exists on its own. He said, since this exists, that exists, and since this does not exist, that does not exist. We're connected to other people through the way we interact, through the air we share, through our existence together in nature. Trying to ignore or resist this interconnection is basically trying to destroy something which already exists. This doesn't mean that we're literally dependent on others for our life and our existence, but that life and existence of everybody and everything develops through the relationship with things outside themselves. The food they eat, the environment they live in, the history and the circumstances of their world. It's a great web of being that each of us is connected to without any effort of our own. And being aware of that connection gives us space to have meaningful and positive relationships with others. It is a choice that each of us has to decide what we want to do with the reality of our connection. Sangha, in a very broad sense, means being willing to let other people in, to let them matter. To do that, we have to be willing for other people to let us in. When we can even consider the possibility of that happening, there's the potential for us to move toward liberation, and the benefits are felt almost immediately. All of us, during our development and experience of life, had experiences that made us doubt our own voice or the value or wisdom of expressing that voice. Many of these doubts contributed to the suffering we experienced during addiction and continued to make it difficult to connect to our own recovery. Our meetings are intended as places where we can feel safe and comfortable authentically expressing what we feel and experience. However, many of us, because of prior experience and experiences in both social settings and in the recovery community, struggle with this a lot. We often struggle just to understand our feelings and experiences. The Sangha allows us to start to explore the ways we can find and authentically express our voices, to value our own voice, and to be sure that our voices are heard. Your recovery Sangha can be one that focuses on helping and encouraging those many voices. In the Buddhist tradition, it's not just that we don't have to do this work alone, it's that we need the support of others on the path to waking up. In a famous story, the Buddha's cousin and assistant Ananda came to visit him and remarked, This is half of the holy life, having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. The Buddha disagreed, saying that having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of the holy life. When we come together to talk honestly about ourselves and what happened in our lives, something very powerful can happen. When we see people committing to be who they truly are in all their imperfections and their longing to be free, our hearts naturally begin to open because their realness allows us to be more real. In their vulnerability, our wise, admirable friends give us the freedom to be vulnerable ourselves and to speak our own truths. So our Sangha becomes the place where we are supported and encouraged to stay on the path, even when it's challenging or when our progress seems stuck. Our wise friends are, without words, telling us that if we keep going, so will they, and often that makes all the difference. Working with others 
For many of us in early recovery, asking for help feels almost impossible. But we have found, as difficult as it can be, that it can literally save our lives. And that, with practice, it becomes easier. However, asking for help is not just important because it may get results. At times, in fact, it may not. Even with a lot of help and support, things can still stand in our way. Sometimes, what we want from the world and from ourselves is just more than what's available right then. However, even if asking for help may not always get us what we want, it will always help get us through. When we practice accepting help from people who are offering to help, we become just a little bit more open and a little less stuck. It's the decision to reach out as much as the answer we receive that can give us what we need to move forward. Nevertheless, that decision is often a heavy lift for us. Many of us have done things during our active addictions that we're not proud of. Some of the decisions we made in the past have far-reaching consequences that continue to impact our lives even after we begin our recovery. We may have worn a mask of competence, or fearlessness, or blamelessness, and the fear of what might happen when we take the mask off may keep us from reaching out. We may be afraid that if we ask people in our lives for help with financial problems, legal trouble, or any of those sorts of issues, we might lose them. We might worry that they will no longer respect us or accept us once the mask is gone, because our fear is that we'll be revealed as broken, fundamentally flawed people. There's even the fear that there's just nothing behind the mask, that we're simply empty underneath. We practice compassion for all beings, including ourselves, to see the truth beneath those fears, that there is a loving and lovable heart within all of us. We come to see clearly that those around us feel more pain watching a struggle alone than if they would if we let them in. And of course, by shutting people out and refusing to let them see our struggles, we'll often bring about the loss and isolation that we were trying to avoid in the first place. So in view of our own suffering and the pain we can cause the, to those closest to us, we can see that asking for help is not selfish. In fact, it is an act of great compassion to ourselves and others. Those who have shared the pain of addiction and isolation understand the fear and shame better than we might imagine. Through listening at meetings and sharing our own experiences, we begin to see how we're not uniquely broken or flawed. And it's often easier to ask for help from someone other than those people you're closest with. In addition to the people in your Sangha, there may be counselors and other professionals in your community who can be a resource when you need someone with experience and a greater degree of objectivity. Some clinics and universities even offer community counseling on a sliding pay scale, so you may not have to eliminate that option just for financial reasons. And if you are able to make an appointment, know that some fear and reluctance is perfectly natural, and that shouldn't be a reason to cancel the session. Of course, we know intellectually that our problems become easier to face when we have help, but emotionally we may still feel fear. Here again, it's the decision to give it a try that may be more valuable than the outcome of the meeting itself. We learn that letting people in and being a little more vulnerable is not as frightening as we may have thought. In fact, we may often find that it's less daunting than the idea of dealing with our problems all by ourselves. When we make a practice of asking for help, we frequently find that it improves both the quality and quantity of our relationships in general. 
Even if you don't become personally close with people in your Sangha outside of meetings, you may find that you are able to connect with more people on a deep level that could be something entirely new in your life. Even if you are seeking help from a clergy person, a therapist, or some other sort of professional, notice how opening up to another person affects how much you trust them. Is there a deepening of respect and feeling of safety as your ability to be transparent grows? This confidence and security may also bring benefits to your personal relationships. Try to notice these changes as they arise and give yourself credit for taking steps that are often difficult. It's pretty common to worry about sharing your problems with people that will cause them to look down on you, burden them with your baggage, or even upset them in some way. And while we must be honest and acknowledge that that may be a risk, we also know that remaining isolated can be much greater risk to ourselves and to others. In general, there is a lot of truth in the cliché that burdens are lighter when they're shared. Most of us have felt like an enormous weight had been removed off our shoulders when we made that choice to not be alone with our problems anymore. And as we experience that relief, we find that asking for help becomes easier and easier. The truth, for many of us, is that when we first came into recovery, we may not immediately have easy access to our inner wisdom. Many of us have been relying on the delusion of fear and shame and reactivity as our guides in life. It takes time to lift those veils, to dig through those layers, to break those habits and begin to see clearly. For many of us, it takes time to be able to trust ourselves again. But we can look to our Sangha, to our community of wise friends on the path, for guidance and wisdom. When we don't know what to do, when we lose faith that we can make it through this craving, when we're lost in obsession and can't make sense of our own minds and hearts, when the world feels upside down, when we are crawling out of our skin with discomfort, when we have no idea what the next wise step is, this is when we can and must reach out to our Sangha for help. Because they've gone through what we have. They've made it to the other side. They can show us how they did it. Wise friends and mentors. Many, if not most, recovery meetings are focused on meditating together, reading literature, or exploring specific topics and sharing. There are no requirements for attendance other than a respectful curiosity, and attending meetings are a great opportunity for newcomers to visit and learn about the program. Sometimes, those who have decided to commit to this program of recovery want more support on the path. This is where the idea of a wise friend or mentor comes in. The Buddha talked about four kinds of friends. The helpful friend, the kind of friend who sticks with you through good times and bad, the compassionate friend, and the mentor. A wise friend supports us through example, kindness, and compassion. It can be anyone in the Sangha who we trust to act as a guide, a supporter, a partner, or just a fellow traveler on the path. This relationship may take many forms, but it is one built on honesty, compassion, healthy boundaries, and a shared intention to support one another's recovery. For some of us, especially newcomers, it's helpful to work with a mentor, a wise friend who's been following the program for a while, who gives support, is there to reach out when times get rough, and can hold us accountable. It's not a formal position. Nobody is certified or authorized to be a mentor. They are just members of the community freely sharing their journey through the Four Truths and the Eightfold Path. 
Everybody decides for themselves if they want to collaborate with someone else on their path, understanding that they must ultimately do the work of recovery themselves. Clear communication and expectations from both people is important. There are no strict rules, but if you are asked to help someone else in this way, it's a good idea to have someone who's done it before to support you. It's also strongly encouraged that you commit to the precepts, at least as far as the supportive relationship is concerned. Many people form a study or practice group in addition to regular meetings in order to give and receive help from wise friends on their path of recovery. Some folks call these Kalyanamitta groups, the Pali term for wise or admirable friend. Some call them Dharma buddies. Whatever the name, people gather to explore particular aspects of the path in a smaller group, like practicing longer periods of sitting meditation, studying the Buddhist texts, or listening to recorded Dharma talks. There's no one way to run these sorts of groups, and no special experience is needed to start one. You can experiment for yourselves and also look at the experience of established groups for ideas. There are also groups that have formed to support each other in writing inquiries or investigations of how their addictive behavior led to suffering. This is a powerful technique for self-discovery and liberation, and like most things in this program, there is no one right way to do it. Some approach in the same way as the inventories in 12-step programs, and some don't. The goal is not to cause shame or to dwell on past traumas, but rather to turn toward the pain and confusion we have been running from and to learn to meet it with kindness, forgiveness, and compassion. You may consider using the questions for inquiry in this book as a starting place for your own exploration, and there are also a number of other written formats available. If you need help, know that you're a part of the broader community of wise friends the Sangha of people using Buddhism for recovery. It's strongly encouraged for at least one person in the group to have someone they can check in with about best practices and safety, especially when we are working with difficult aspects of our past. Holding safe space will require wisdom and compassion from all members. At any time, in group as well as in every aspect of our lives, the reminder is that when in doubt, we can be present and we can be kind. Service and Generosity Different schools of Buddhism have slightly different lists of strengths or good qualities that lead a person to enlightenment. First on every one of those lists, though, is dana, or generosity. We often think of generosity in terms of money, and many groups use the word dana to describe the donations that members give and support the meeting. In the Buddhist tradition, though, dana is any act of giving. Not just money, but also food, time, or our attention, without expecting anything in return. You may already be familiar with the emphasis that many recovery programs put on service, which is perfectly in line with this ancient teaching. The merit of this practice has been central to many religions and philosophies down through the centuries. Generosity with our time, energy, and attention is not only of benefit to others on this path, As we become more generous, it also helps us loosen the grip of greed and attachment that caused so much of our suffering. From the first time we mindfully put a couple dollars in the offering bowl or or introduce ourselves to a newcomer after a meeting, we can start to feel the benefit of being generous without asking for thanks. In our meditation practice, we learn through direct experience how our bodies and our wealth are impermanent, and this insight makes us more willing to do good with them while we still have them. 
sharing our experience at a meeting, or even simply meditating along with others and giving our silent encouragement and support is an act of kindness that benefits both ourselves and our sagna. Many of us have trained ourselves for years to be vigilant without being taken advantage of or ripped off. In some cases, this has certainly been justified, and there will always be times where we will need to set and maintain healthy boundaries. But as our practice deepens, we're able to do so with an attitude of discernment and compassion. In the Buddhist teachings, generosity is not a commandment or a you should. It's not an unrealistic standard that people are expected to measure themselves by and find themselves falling short. It is, instead, a description of our true nature, of the open and loving hearts that have always been within us, but that have been covered up for so long that they were almost lost to us. The practice helps us to recover this original nature. As we try to be more kind and more generous in our meetings and in our lives, we learn to trust our own innate kindness, and we build up confidence that we can give ourselves to others and still be safe. We continually test what we think our limitations are and grow in self-esteem, self-respect, and well-being as we see these limitations for what they are defensive strategies that have once maybe have been necessary, but which have been hardened into handcuffs of habit. The voice of our attachments may say, I don't want to put my hard-earned money in that bowl, or maybe I'll do this act of service, but I'll stop if people don't show enough appreciation. As we practice generosity, we see how these fears are transparent and how they have kept us small we begin to realize that this practice is really about creating more space in our hearts and minds. As we notice our limits and allow ourselves to go beyond them, our hearts, minds become more expansive, more spacious and composed. This brings us greater feelings of happiness and self-respect and gives our practice more strength and flexibility to look at the conditions of our lives and our recovery. We can see the benefits of such a practice when we think about the opposite of this openness about times when our minds and hearts have been closed and protective. We felt on edge, uneasy, and we usually didn't like ourselves very much. In that kind of state, we had very few resources to deal with any discomfort or confusion. We are often thrown off balance by even small setbacks. Painful or difficult experiences often overwhelmed us and sent us running for the temporary relief of substances or behaviors. As we get more comfortable with a generous, open heart, we experience more balance and ease. When something unpleasant arises, we don't have to worry that it's going to crush us or overpower us. We have a refuge we can increasingly rely on in times of trouble. And when a pleasant experience arises, we don't cling to it as desperately because we don't actually need it to feel good about ourselves. We also practice generosity to be of service to others to extend healing and happiness to all beings, to try in some small way to reduce the suffering in this world. What we learn as we continue to work with generosity is that the inner practice of recognizing the emptiness of our attachments and building up resilience is one and the same as the outer practice of giving and service. Recovery is possible. In the pages of this book is a path, a set of principles and practices that can lead to the end of suffering and see us through the damage that we piled onto ourselves through our addictions. 
The path is based on gaining and maintaining mindfulness of our feelings, bodies, minds, and experiences. During our journey, we come to accept that we're responsible for our own actions and that every choice has a consequence. If we act unskillfully or mindlessly, we will experience pain in our own feelings, thoughts, and experiences, karma, and we may cause harm to others. We begin to recognize that every thought, feeling, and experience is only temporary, that it will pass if we allow it to, and trusting this can provide a safe harbor in moments of craving our pain and permanence. We start to believe that even the most difficult, traumatic, and painful actions and events of our past don't define who we are today, nor do they define the possibilities in our future. It is our choices and actions now that define us. At the same time, we can start to notice and reflect on experience without getting attached to it or to the stories we tell ourselves about it, selflessness. We come to expect that we can never satisfy all of our desires and cravings. We see this in our struggles with impermanence, with sickness and aging, not getting what we want or losing what we have, not feeling loved by those we desire or feeling rejected by those whose caring we want the most. We sometimes have to deal with people in situations that are in painful or uncomfortable, unsatisfactoriness. But with this clear understanding, we can begin to choose more appropriate actions and responses to our experience, and it is in this choice where we find freedom and relief from suffering. When we act with full awareness of each choice, of even the smallest action, we can begin to notice the motivations behind everything we do. We can begin to ask, is this action useful or not? Is it skillful or unskillful? Whenever we're confused or feel lost, we have meditation tools that we can use to simply return to the present moment, to our experience of the present as it is for us right now, and we can check it in with our Sangha, our wise friends, for added perspective and compassionate support. So what do we gain by practicing, understanding, ethical conduct and mindfulness? We're asked to sit with discomfort, to experience it without fear or resistance, and to know that it's impermanent. We learn that dukkha is part of the human condition, and efforts to avoid or deny it lead to the more unhappiness and suffering. We've learned that we can never satisfy our desires through sense experiences, through chasing pleasure and trying to hold on to it. Every pleasant sense experience will end, and the more we try to hold on to it and turn desire into need or craving, the more we suffer dukkha. We're mindful that dissatisfaction and unhappiness have beginnings. By tracing the dissatisfaction or unhappiness back to its root, we can weed it out of the mind. We follow the Eightfold Path, which allows us to develop understanding. It teaches us the karmic advantage of compassion, loving-kindness, appreciative joy, and equanimity. We learn the quiet satisfaction of living a more ethical and mindful life. We are achieving what in Buddhism is called sukha, or true happiness. This is not the temporary pleasure that comes from a high or other temporary sense experience, but the inner peace and well-being that comes from a balanced, mindful life. It is the opposite of the suffering and unsatisfactoriness of dukkha. Sukha is freedom from hate, greed, and confusion. It is an expansive approach to life, being able to sit with and move through feelings of discontent, dissatisfaction. 
many of us have been running from and denying dukkha for a very long time. But we have found that it's only when we stop running that we are able to truly access authentic happiness. We can practice this message. I am here. This is the way it is right now. This is a moment of suffering. May I give myself the care I need at this moment. May I accept this without struggling, but also without giving up. We've started to learn that mindfulness involves investigating our unskillful actions and choices, both past and present, and choosing to act with more wisdom in the future. Rather than being bogged down by guilt or shame about the past, we can use it as a guide to making different choices in the present. As we devote energy to awakening and recovery, we'll learn to investigate our present and our past with wisdom rather than craving or aversion. We'll experience the growth of trust in our own capacity for and right to recovery. As we get a clear understanding of what we're doing in our lives, of the choices we're making and the consequence of those choices, we gain the opportunity to develop generosity, loving kindness, forgiveness and equanimity. These are central to Buddhist practice and to our recovery. We learn to give freely because we understand that clinging to what is mine is based on the delusion that we are what we possess or what we control. We learn to have metta or loving kindness towards all beings in the world, whether we know them or not. We come to understand that our practice isn't just for ourselves, but it is based on the interconnectedness and happiness of all living beings. Recovery transforms how we show up for those around us. We can become the compassionate, generous, and wise friend whose calming voice and steadfast support can help others to understand their own struggles and find their own path to healing. There is no magic bullet, no single action or practice that will end suffering. This is a path composed of a set of practices that help us deal with suffering and respond wisely to our own lives. We cannot escape or avoid dukkha, but we can begin to be more at peace knowing that there is a path forward, a path with less suffering, less craving, less aversion, less destruction, and less shame. It's a path without an end. It requires effort and awareness, and we don't have to do it alone. Recovery is a lifelong process of recovering our true natures and finding a way to an enduring and non-harmful sense of happiness. In recovery, we can finally find the peace so many of us have been searching for in our addictions. We can break through our isolation and find a community of wise friends to support us on our path. We can build a home for ourselves, within ourselves, and we can help others to do the same. The gifts we give to ourselves, to one another, and to the world is one of courage, understanding, compassion, and serenity. We all experience growth differently and at our own pace. But the most important message of this book is that the journey, the healing, can start now for you and for each of us. May you find your path to recovery. May you trust in your own potential for awakening. Appendix Meditations All meditation involves a combination of both mindfulness and concentration. Mindfulness being the more receptive state of observing the mind and noticing thoughts and sensations. Concentration being the more active energy of choosing what to focus on, whether it be gentle returning to the breath or training the mind through repeated phrases or mantras. The Buddha taught four different ways of meditation, sitting, standing, 
lying down, or walking. You can use any posture that suits you, but be mindful when you are practicing in a group to try and not move in a way that might distract or disturb others. There are many different practices to explore outside the meeting, including mindfulness meditation, concentration meditation, guided meditation, silent meditation, and moving meditation such as walking, yoga, tai chi, or qigong. Meditation can bring up powerful emotions, especially for those in early recovery, with histories of trauma or with co-occurring mental health issues. Silent sitting meditation may not always be the right practice for everyone every time. If you find yourself caught up by overwhelming emotions, you can tap the brakes during practice in a few ways. By opening your eyes, taking a few deep, slow breaths, placing a hand over your heart or belly, focusing attention on a soothing object, or imagining a positive place, activity, or memory. Remember to be kind and gentle with yourself. It's always okay to take care of yourself during meditation. There are many different traditions of Buddhism with many different styles of meditation. Here we offer a basic template that you can build on with some of the suggested options. Meditation is a personal practice, and we encourage you to explore with a spirit of openness and curiosity. May you find refuge and wisdom in your practice.